escort of the dying and comfort of the sick. In a blue glow, my father and little sister sat snuggled in one chair watching you. Their wife and mother was sick in the head. I scorned you and them as I scorned so much. Now I like you best in a hotel room, maybe minutes before I have to face an audience, behind the doors of the armoire, box within a box, Tom and Jerry, or also brilliant and reassuring Oprah Winfrey. Thank you, for I watched. I watched Sid Caesar speaking French and Japanese, not through knowledge, but imagination, his quickness. And thank you. I watched live Jackie Robinson stealing home, the image, oh strung shell, enduring fleeter than light, like these words we remember in. They too are winged at the helmet and ankles. Georgette, she's beautiful. You must be so proud. Oh, thank you, Mary. But let's face it, babies are all alike. Every mother carries on as though her baby is the most beautiful and the smartest and the sweetest. <laughs> I'm determined not to be one of those mothers who goes around babbling about how cute and adorable her baby is, even though my baby is unbelievably cute and adorable. <laughs> Especially this morning, she blew this beautiful little bubble through her lips. And it must have stayed there for about 30 seconds. And as soon as the bubble burst, she made the funniest little noise like this. Oh. But you don't see me talking about it. No, that's right, I don't. <laughs> Would you like some coffee? Sure. What have you been doing lately, Mary? Well, I've been trying my hand at creative writing. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I don't know how wonderful it is, but I feel really good about it. You know, it's something I've been wanting to do. Oh, gee, I think that's terrific, Mary. Except that writing is so difficult. I mean, you have to think of something to write that's never been written before. <laughs> that's right. I'm not writing a novel, though. I'm just writing an article about my grandfather and what a marvelous old character he was. Have you ever written before, Mary? Oh, uh, well, no. I took a creative writing course in college. The professor seemed to think I had some flair. And... Anyway, it's one of those things I just wanted to try but never got around to. Oh, gee. Just think, maybe someday you'll be a famous author. Well, no, I wouldn't count on it, George, yet. It's a little late for that. Mary, don't sell yourself short. Just because you're not a kid anymore doesn't mean you can't wind up being one of the great ones. <laughs> 32 isn't so darn old, you know. Well, I'm 37, Georgette. Well, in that case, you better get the lead on. <laughs> 
honey, you live around here? <laughs> hey, Ted, look, do me a favor, will you? Watch the door and let me know if you see Mary. Uh, she wrote something here I want to finish reading before she gets back. It's very good. Oh, sure. She's at Mayday, Mayday. <laughs> Hi, hi, Mary. Oh, Murray, I can't believe you'd go sneaking into my drawer and invade my privacy like that. Well, what can I say, Mary? Uh, look, I've seen you writing something and then hiding it in that drawer all week, and my, my curiosity just got the best of me. Oh, I see. I leave an article in my drawer, and that somehow makes your lack of character my fault. Is that it, Murray? What is it, Murray? <laughs> Little bugger was messing with your purse, too, Mary. You better count your money. Guilty, Mary. Guilty as charged. That's really a terrific article, though. It's very good. Murray, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, in no way affects what you've done. You violated a trust. <laughs> terrific, Murray, or just very good? <laughs> really terrific. I, mean, I couldn't believe you had this kind of talent. He really liked it? I loved it. Especially that part when your grandfather went walking on the roof yeah. so all you kids would think he was Santa Claus. <laughs> oh, Murray, I can't tell you what it means to me to get the opinion of someone whose judgment I respect. Uh, you can stop hinting, Mary. I'll read it. <laughs> oh, hey, Lou, Mary's written a terrific article. Oh, that's nice. Would you like to read it, Mr. Grant? No. Well, Mr. Grant, I realize that you're very busy, but it's only five pages. It won't take up much of your time. It already has, Mary. But that's not the reason I don't want to read it. I don't want to read it. Because if I tell you I don't like it, your feelings will be hurt. Oh, You'll no, wind up hating no. me. Mary, Mary. Writers feel about their work the way mothers feel about their babies. Which reminds me. I still haven't bought a baby gift for Ted and Georgette. I, I don't know what to get. It's driving me nuts. I don't suppose you'd care to go shopping for me. I'm sure we could work something out, Mr. Grant. <laughs> what does that mean? If I read it, you'll do my shopping? Oh, no, that's not fair. Oh, come on, Mr. Grant. You're overlooking the very distinct possibility that you just might like my story. And besides, I can certainly take constructive criticism from a good friend. I mean, far from hating you, I would love you all the more for it. Oh, Mary. Mr. Grant, no. I think you'll like it. Oh, Mary. No. Would you just trust me? Oh, no, okay. Ted, can I have a look at the Oh, please? sure. Mary, I loved it. If the rest of it's as good as that first paragraph, you've got to win. <laughs> it's not perfect. That's right, Mary. It, it, it isn't perfect. <laughs> That's the whole critique? Mr. Grant, I, I don't feel that not perfect really tells me very much. You're right, Mary. It's bad. <laughs> well, bad is, is one of those words that uh, could mean interesting but flawed uh well paced uh but erratically structured it stinks it... mary 
stinks. It's not quite as ambiguous as that. You wanted my honest opinion, hmm? Mr. Grant, could, could you be, um, a little more specific? Um, what, what about it isn't first rate? Uh, the, um, the, uh, the first paragraph. The first paragraph, okay, first, I had the feeling when I was the, writing The second it, paragraph, uh, the second paragraph isn't uh, first rate. The third paragraph isn't first rate. The You're really having a good time, aren't you, Mr. Grant? <laughs> Believe me, Mary, I wish I had liked your article. I really oh, do. sure. But you kept insisting that I tell you exactly how I felt, and that's exactly what I did. By saying it stinks. Well, it does. What do you want me to say? Well, I don't know, Mr. Payne. You could have said uh, it isn't your cup of tea, uh, didn't strike your fancy, uh, wasn't quite up to snuff. No, I couldn't. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Mary. Besides 12-year-old scotch and playing high-stakes poker with really dumb guys, there aren't a lot of things that I love. But good writing is one of them. Do you know what really good writing is? I thought I did. Apparently, I was mistaken. <laughs> there was a desert wind blowing that night. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that come down through the mountain passes and curl your hair and make your nerves jump and your skin itch. On nights like that, every booze party ends in a fight. Meek little wives feel the edge of the carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen. Raymond Chandler. Makes you want to read on, doesn't he? He writes well about the weather. <laughs> Mr. Grant, that's a piece of fiction. It's not fair to compare fiction to non-fiction. You're telling me that sap in your story is a real person? Josiah Wallace was my grandfather. What? He really sang Christmas carols all year round? Yes. And carved leprechauns out of apples? Yes. And sent cards to all the presidents on their birthdays? It's all true. It's all boring. Well, Mr. Grant, Murray liked it very much, and Murray is a professional writer. Oh, Mary, Murray likes it so much. He likes everything you do. Well, maybe, Mr. Grant, just maybe that's what real friendship is all about, hmm? <laughs> I'm sorry, Mary. I wish I had liked it. I suppose you had your heart set on sending it to a magazine, didn't you? I did, and I still do. Reader's Digest, as a matter of fact. Just because you don't like it, Mr. Grant, doesn't mean it stinks. No. You're not like most people, Mr. Grant. Most people love reading about delightful, warm-hearted old men. You don't happen to. All right, that's your privilege. It doesn't mean that you're right. It doesn't mean that I'm right. It does mean, however, that you can do your own damn baby shopping. <laughs> And now, a word from our sponsors. Salmon, Jory Graham. I watched them once, at dusk, on television, run in our motel room halfway through Nebraska, quick, glittering, past beauty, past the importance of beauty, archaic, not even hungry, not even endangered, driving deeper and deeper into less. They leapt up falls, ladders, and rock, tearing and leaping, a gold river and a blue river 
traveling in opposite directions. They would not stop. Resolution of will and helplessness, as the eye is helpless when the image forms itself upside down, backward, driving up into the mind, and the world unfastens itself from the deep ocean of the given. Justice, aspen leaves, mother attempting suicide, the white night-flying moth, the ants dismantled bit by bit and carried in right through the crack in my wall. How helpless the still pool is, upstream, awaiting the gold blade of their hurry. Once, indoors, a child I watched at noon, through slatted wooden blinds, a man and woman, woman, naked, eyes closed, climb onto each other on the terrace floor and ride, two gold currents wrapping round and round each other, fastening, unfastening. I hardly knew what I saw. Whatever shadow there was in that world, it was the one each cast onto the other. The thin black seam they seemed to be trying to work away between them. I held my breath. As far as I could tell, the work they did with sweat and light was good. I'd say they traveled far in opposite directions. What is the light at the end of the day, deep, reddish gold, bathing the walls, the corridors, light that is no longer light, no longer clarifies, illuminates, antique, freed from the body of that air that carries it. What is it for the space of time where it is useless, merely beautiful? When they were done, they made a distance from one, one from the other and slept, outstretched on the warm tile of the terrace floor, smiling, faces pressed against the stone. Oh, morning, Murray. Oh, morning, Ted. Hey, did you happen to watch Sammy and company on TV last night? Uh, no, Ted, somehow I missed it. Ah, oh, that's too bad. You know, Sammy Davis is kind of a profound guy once you get past the tap dancing. <laughs> he and on some famous writers who are plugging their books, so I thought maybe you tuned in to watch. Sammy Davis had writers on his show? Sure. Who? Oh, Doris Day, Lawrence Welk, Dizzy Ernest, Cab Calloway. <laughs> sort of got me to thinking maybe I ought to write my memoirs. I mean, after all, I mean, I'm good-looking, virile, well-turned-out, money to burn. And I'm not into booze or drugs or... Any of that weird hanky-panky with men, women, or farm animals. <laughs> hey, Ted, maybe it would be a good idea. Yeah, you would be the first person who ever wrote a book without ever having read one. I've read lots of books, Murray. Name one. Black Beauty. <laughs> How could I have doubted you again? Oh, Murray. A letter from Rita's Digest. I'm too nervous, you read it. Uh, well, I'm too nervous. Here, you read it. Okay. <laughs> 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 will you come on? All right, all right. The answer is... <laughs> Dear Miss Richards, thank you very much for submitting your article to us. <laughs> We regret that we are unable to publish it in our magazine at this time. That's really lousy. Yeah, you're right. Let me try it again. Dear Miss Richards. 
We have adjusted the rabbit ears. And now, another word from our sponsors. The Life and Times of Wild E. Coyote. Super Genius. By Greg Williamson. I am a genius by trade. W.E. Coyote. With you, Aflane, a fling, a fang, not yet nonplussed, nemesis road rummer, swift-footed, taker of three, forks, strange kinetic fellow, animated character, that plumed cuckoo, bird, thou never wert, sticks out his tongue, waves, peels out, and you wrap up a peleated bust of smoke. And now, what now? I must dream up a brilliant master strategy. Ingenious, daring. Here's to you, coyote. Here's to giant fly traps, quick dry cements, to acme robots, glues, kites, keyhole saws, do it yourself tornadoes, female bird impersonations, anvils, earthquake pills, and to the selective repeal of natural laws. Schemus backfirebus, a reverse Quixote. Art turns to mere truth what it represents. Then, proven to be true, it turns fictitious. Roadrunner goes right over the painted span. You fall to the canyon floor, and from the phony tunnel comes the train, engineered by the bird, your foisson, fantasy, feather in your cap, the better life, your failure, like my own. While ye, every man, come, trickster, let us feast on our clay chicken, our tin can. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Mary. Why don't you go sit in the living room and I'll bring the coffee? Toothpick, Mary? <laughs> no, thanks, Ted. We got plenty. No, really, thank you. <laughs> Feeling better, Mary? Oh, yeah, much better. Oh, that's good. You shouldn't be depressed about that Reader's Digest thing. It's the way life is. <laughs> sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. <laughs> sometimes you're sitting on top of the world... Sometimes you're down at dumps. Sometimes your life is a symphony. Sometimes life is a... Disgusting noise. Exactly. Here we are. I baked these macaroons myself. Oh! Macaroons? Why don't you tell me, Georgette? I just finished picking my teeth, didn't I, Mary? I really didn't notice, Ted. Just telling Mary she shouldn't let what happened get her down. No, I'm not going to. I'm going to send that article off to every magazine I can think of. That's great, Mary. You could send it to the New Yorker, Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping, Collier's. Well, Ted, Collier's has been out of business for years. (laughs) With all due respect, Mary, so is your grandfather. anything. I just bought the baby a little gift. I wanted to bring it right over. (laughs) Hi, Ted. Hi, Lou. Hi, Mary. Hello, Mr. Grant. Dee, I sure hope she likes this. I didn't know what to get, and uh, nobody would help me. (laughs) I went to about ten different stores. I hope she doesn't already have one. (laughs) 
Oh. It's really beautiful, though. It's yeah. something she's always wanted. It's a good thing to wake up the kid to see this. Listen, Lou, uh, sit down, have your coffee, enjoy yourselves. I've, I've got work to do. I'm busy writing the story of my life. Story of your life? What are you up to? The part where you came in with the blue walrus. <laughs> I think I'll put this in the baby's room. When she wakes up, I'll tell her it's from you, Lou. Georgette, she won't have to. It looks just like him. <laughs> hey, Mary, come on. Let's be friends again. I don't know what you mean, Mr. Grant. Aren't we friends? Oh, come on, Mary. You haven't smiled once at me in nearly two weeks. It's because you haven't done anything worth smiling at in two weeks. Well, I'm going to get a smile out of you. Oh, do you have a plan? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to tickle you. That's my plan. I'm not ticklish, Mr. Grant. Everybody is ticklish. My, are there no limits to the areas of your expertise? You ready, Mary? Huh? Then here goes. <laughs> Would you like to borrow a feather? All right, stay mad. But you know why you're mad at me? Because you know I'm right about that article. I know no such thing. Well, when you hear from Reader's Digest, then you know. Well, it just so happens, Mr. Grant, I already heard from Reader's Digest. Turn you down, didn't I? Oh, boy, you are so sure of yourself. Well, Mr. Grant, I've got news for you. They bought it. What do you think of that? They bought it. They bought it. They bought it. Check's on its way. They bought it. That thing about the old coot who carved stuff out of marshmallows? Apples, Mr. Grant, and the old coot was my grandfather. Well, if they bought it, they bought it. They bought it? They bought it. <laughs> well, what, what can I say except congratulations, Mary? I was never so happy to be proved wrong in, in my life. That's, that's really something. <laughs> Getting the first story you ever wrote published in Reader's Digest? Ooh! I gotta be going. Uh, yeah. It's uh, nice seeing you, Georgette. I hope the baby likes her gift. And uh, tell Ted I said good night. Okay, good night, Lou. Yeah. Mary, you lied. I know I lied, Georgette. <laughs> I never heard you lie before. Well, I was just so angry with him. But, but you lied. I never believed you could do such a thing. <laughs> Were you lying when you said you thought my baby was the cutest thing you oh, ever Georgette, saw? <laughs> Did you lie when you said you liked that new blue dress I bought? No, Georgette, of course not. How about when you said you were 37? <laughs> and now, a word from our sponsor, Michael Robbins. Desperado by Michael Robbins. 
This episode of CSI Miami always makes me cry. I throw the Eagles' greatest hits out the window darkly. You better take my car keys. I hope I turn to ashes in the morning sun. I do whatever a spider woman can, but I can't stand here listening to you and your Rastafarian friend. Them cattle ain't gonna drive themselves. I hope that in the morning sun they low apocalyptically. My IQ's the E you get when you divide by a zero. The warm smell of Kalita's rising through each woof and wow and warp takes me to the limit one more time. It's quiet on the set. That's a wrap. Any luck? Three rejections. Well, all right, Mary. I mean, so you couldn't sell an article. It's not the end of the world. Oh, Murr, it's not the rejections that bother me. It's the fact that I lied to Mr. Grant. I never did that. It really makes me feel rotten. I mean, how could I just have lied like that? Cosmopolitan Magazine, what's that? Well, they wanted to buy my article, too. Um, but I had to tell them that uh, Reader's Digest uh, already bought it. Lies <laughs> again, Murray. It's habit-forming. One lie leads to another. I'm going to put a stop to it right now. Yeah. Mr. Grant. So what's happening to that article of yours? When is Reader's Digest printing it? December. <laughs> or June. They haven't decided yet. What are they paying for an article these days? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah about the same as always. Um, you know, we, we haven't really um, decided on a uh, on a price yet. You know, they 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 made an offer, and you know, I pulling out for a little more money. Smart move. Yeah. They ask you to write any more? Well, you know, I have a, a couple, of, couple of ideas that uh, I'm kicking around with one of the associate uh, editors, and he, he, uh, I'm lying, Mr. Grant. I knew that. How did you know? Your face turned beet red. You stammered. Your entire body began to quiver. Are you either lying or I'm a hell of a lot sexier than I thought? Well, I just want you to know that the reason I lied is because you hurt me. Oh, I didn't hurt you. Yes, you did. You hurt me. Mary, I don't know how you want to be treated. How do you want me to act? Huh? Like this? Ted, get in here. Well, Ted also gave me something to read. <laughs> what is it, Lou? You found out we took back the walrus. I didn't want to do it. It was Georgette. She insisted I exchange it for a sports shirt. Ted, it's not that. I've just been reading your book, and it's brilliant. I was a little worried about chapter three. Marvelous chapter. What was your favorite sentence? Well, it's really hard to say. They were both very good. <laughs> well, it's the best doggone thing of its type I've ever read. Holy I Lord. didn't think you had it in you, you old wordsmith. <laughs> <laughs>
Say what you will about the big fella. You can always trust him to level with you. <laughs> you see, Mary? Ted's writing is lousy. Even worse than yours. But when you brought yours to me, I respected you enough to tell you the truth. Would you rather I had treated you like I treated Ted? Huh? Would you prefer that I patronize you like some idiot? Shower you with empty compliments? Huh? Pump up your ego like you were some empty-headed, bumbling, brainless boob? Is that what you want? God, yes. <laughs> okay. Mary, I loved your story. Why, thank you, Mr. <laughs> oh. And now, a word from our sponsor, Bruce Smith. What are they doing in the next room? Are they unmaking everything? Are they tuning the world sitar? Are they taking an ice pick to being? Are they enduring freedom in Kandahar? Sounds at this distance like field haulers. Sounds like they'll be needing CPR. Sounds like the old complaint of love and dollars. Sounds like when Coltrane met Ravi Shankar and the Raga met the Rag and hearing became different and you needed CPR after listening and tearing was tearing and love was a binary star. Distant bodies eclipsing each other with versions of gravity and light. Sounds like someone's trying to smother the other, a homicide or a wedding night. The television derives the half-full hours. Time exists as mostly what's to come. Losing also is ours. I meant that as a question. Is I the insomniac's question? Are you a dendrite or a dream? Between oblivion and affection, which one is fear and which protection? Are they transitive or in? Are they process or product? Are they peeling off the skin? Are they Paris or the abducted? They're reading something after Joyce, postmodern stuff that can be read but not understood except as voices rising and falling from the dead. Do they invent me as I invent their faces? I see surveillance gray-waisted with bliss at having thieved identities. In the a.m., when two turns to a stead, the sun clocks in to overwrite the night with hues and saturations, and the red hesitates for a second to be incarnate. Was the end of another day in the neutral. See you tomorrow, Ted. My executive producer said, see you tomorrow, Ted. Gee, Ted, it's 8.30. Are you still working on your book? My producer came in and asked, hey, Ted, it's 8.30. Are you still working on your book? Ted, why don't you knock it off? Ted, why don't you knock it off? The three of them walked out. Ha, 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 ha.
leaving me in total darkness. <laughs> to continue writing the greatest autobiography the world will ever read. afternoon and the people of London are preparing for the night. Everyone is anxious to get home before darkness falls, before our nightly visitors arrive. This is the London rush hour. Many of the people at whom you are looking now are members of the greatest civilian army ever to be assembled. These men and women who have worked all day in offices or in markets are now hurrying home to change into the uniform of their particular service. The dusk is deepening. Listening crews are posted all the way from the coast to London to pick up the drone of the German planes. Soon the nightly battle of London will be on. This has been a quiet day for us, but it won't be a quiet night. We haven't had a quiet night now for more than five weeks. They'll be over tonight. And they'll destroy a few buildings and kill a few people. Probably some of the people you are watching now. Now they're going into the public shelters. This is not a pleasant way to spend the night, but the people accept it as their part in the defense of London. These civilians are good soldiers. Now it's eight o'clock. Jerry is a little bit late tonight. The searchlights are in position. The guns are ready. The People's Army of Volunteers is ready. They are the ones who are really fighting this war. The firemen, the air raid wardens, the ambulance drivers. And there's the wail of the Banshee. The nightly siege of London has begun. The city is dressed for battle. Here they come. Now the searchlights are poking long, white, inquisitive fingers into the blackness of the night.
very young and the very old with that deep wisdom given only to the very young and the very old sleep in the shelters. Do you see any signs of fear on these faces? Now the army of the people swings into action. The bombs have started fires. When the bomber starts a fire, he immediately returns, uses it as a target, and drops more bombs, hoping to spread the fire. Yet the people's army ignores the bombs and the spent shrapnel which rains down constantly. Brokers, clerks, peddlers, merchants by day, they are heroes by night. The night is long, but sooner or later the dawn will come. The German bombers are creatures of the night. They melt away before the dawn and scurry back to the safety of their own airdromes. And there's the wail of the banshee again, this time a friendly wail. The all-clear signal tells us that the bombers have gone. It's just 6 a.m. In this last hour of precious sleep, this strange new world finds peace. London raises her head, shakes the debris of the night from her hair, and takes stock of the damage done. London has been hurt during the night. The sign of a great fighter in the ring is, can he get up from the floor after being knocked down? London does this every morning. London doesn't look down upon the ruins of its houses, upon those made homeless during the night, upon the remains of churches, hospitals, workers' flats. London looks upwards toward the dawn and faces the new day with calmness and confidence. The people's army go to work as they did in that other comfortable world which came to an end when the invader began to attack the last strongholds of freedom. Not all the services run as they did yesterday, but London manages to get to work on time, one way or another. In the center of the city, the shops are open as usual. In fact, many of them are more open than usual. Dr. Paul Joseph Gibbles said recently that the nightly air raids have had a terrific effect upon the morale of the people of London. The good doctor is absolutely right. Today, the morale of the people is higher than ever before. They are fused together, not by fear, but by a surging spirit of courage the like of which the world has never known. They know that thousands of them will die, but they would rather stand up and face death and kneel down and face the kind of existence the conqueror would impose upon them. And they know, too, and are comforted by the thought that England is not taking its beating lying down. They are guarding the frontiers of freedom. It is hard to see five centuries of labor destroyed in five seconds. But London is fighting back I am a neutral reporter. I have watched the people of London live and die ever since death in its most ghastly garb began to come here as a nightly visitor five weeks ago. I have watched them stand by their homes. I have seen them made homeless. I have seen them move to new homes. And I can assure you there is no panic, no fear, no despair in London town. 
there is nothing but determination, confidence, and high courage among the people of Churchill's Island. And they know that every night the RAF bombers fly deep into the heart of Germany, bombing munition works, airplane factories, canals, cutting the arteries which keep the heart of Germany alive. It is true that the Nazis will be over again tomorrow night and the night after that and every night. They will drop thousands of bombs and they'll destroy hundreds of buildings and they'll kill thousands of people. But a bomb has its limitations. It can only destroy buildings and kill people. It cannot kill the unconquerable spirit and courage of the people of London. London can take it. Once there was a mountain called Peak 15. Nothing was known about it. But in 1852, the surveyors found it was the highest in the world, and they named it Everest.
of the world. And there, lifting its craggy snow-topped peak above all the others, stands Mount Everest, a towering giant among giants. The cameraman with oxygen mask films for the first time intimate aerial glimpses of Everest's frigid beauty. In scenes much like these, a British expedition set out to scale its icy summit, the dream of mountaineers for 30 years. Struggling upward in the final assault would be Edmund Hillary, a New Zealand beekeeper, and Tenzing Norkey, veteran Himalayan guide. Jealously, Everest guards its peak, shielded by its ancient armor of rock and ice, blizzard and avalanche, mist and altitude that dulls the wits and wills of men. Climbed at last, a lofty outpost of the world. 29,000 feet above the sea, Hillary and Norkey set foot where man has never stood before. They join history's greatest adventurers. They conquered unconquerable Mount Everest. Down the great mountain comes the tired, triumphant party of explorers. While in Kathmandu, capital of Thani, Nepal, crowds surge through the streets as news spreads of their return. Tenzing, Nepal's own tiger of the snows, and Hillary are engulfed by the hero-worshipping natives as they prepare to fly to England. Arriving in London, Colonel John Hunt, director of the expedition whose exploits thrill the world, leads his team into a jubilant reception waving the Union Jack that flew atop Everest. A daughter of one of the climbers claims her hero father in an emotional reunion. Later, in an interview, Hillary recalls his greatest danger. I think the main worry throughout the rest of the uh, actual ascent was the question of the supply of oxygen. We uh, kept constant watch on our oxygen supply and the usage, and even when we were on top, we um, were very worried as to whether we had enough to get down again. Fortunately, we did. Although Tenzing doesn't speak a word of English, it's easy to see how he feels. Halfway around the world, Everest, naught has stood higher, save man. Man and the deed, rising above the top of the earth and the milestones of the century. Everything's still looking very good at this point. 
Okay, all flight controllers gonna go for power descent. Retro, go. Fido, go. Guidance, go. Control, go. Telcom, go. GNC, go. Ecom, go. Surgeon, go. Capcom, we're go for power descent. We're off to a good start. Play it cool. I'm going around the horn. Okay, retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Falcom. Go. Jinsi. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Falcom. Go. Jinsi. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Okay, everybody, let's hang tight and look for landing radar. 75 feet, down and half. 1202 alarm. 60 seconds. We're, we're going, that flag. We're going, that alarm. 40 feet, down two and a half. It's, if it does 3 and 3, we'll be going. 30 seconds. 1201. 1201. Roger, 1201 alarm. 1201 alarm. Set high, we'll go, buddy. Okay, we're going. We've had shutdown. Listen, uh... Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. T1, stand by T1. Stay no stay off, flight controllers. Retro, stay. Fido, stay. Guide, stay. Control. Calcom. GNC. Econ. Surgeon. Retro. Go. Vital. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Calcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Retro. Go. Vital. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Retro. Go. Vital. Go. Guide. Go. Control. This is Stephanie. Thank you for watching the Lunar Feline Hour. I am the Liz. Keep your eyes on the screen for the rest of your life. <laughs> I'm T. Hetzel, and you've been watching Living Writers. Until next time.
We meet in an hour of change and challenge, in a decade of hope and fear. In an age of both knowledge and ignorance. The greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds.
satellite. centuries comes true on October the 4th, 1957. right still looking for a receiver breaks the tackle and he's got a seam down the sideline touchdown michigan gardner takes the shotgun snap looks to his right and connects reaching for the end zone touchdown michigan amara darba gardner makes a hand off to smith looking firing jake buck one-handed catch he caught it unbelievable catch Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You are watching the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor, David Carlson. And on the other side of the glass, I have Jeff Chan. And guys, first, I just want to make a very quick announcement. We will be switching all of our deep analysis, sports analysis, from the University of Michigan Athletics to the Ohio State University Athletics. Ah, just kidding. Just kidding. Happy April Fools to everyone out there listening to us right now. And we're going to...